0: This episode brought to you by Outgrow, a tool that helps you reach more customers with interactive content. It's a must-have for every modern marketer. With Outgrow, any marketer can build calculators, assessments, chatbots, and recommendation tools to double your conversion rates. Just ask Tableau, Adobe, and MuleSoft, who all use outgrow.co to boost their marketing and lead generation. Go to outgrow.co for a 30-day free trial. That's outgrow.co. Podcast listeners will get a special 30-day free trial with no card required. Try Outgrow today to grow your business. This episode is brought to you by Yext. There's one thing this year has taught us. It's that your website is your only pandemic-proof asset, but not if it's broken. Websites that have all the form often lack a very critical function, search. There's either no way to search, or if there is, the experience is so bad that you can't even get answers to basic questions. If this sounds like your website, Yext Answers can help. Yext Answers adds a best-in-class search engine to your website so your customers get an official answer to every question. And that means more transactions and fewer calls to customer service. You can try Yext Answers for free. Just go to yext.com, that's Y-E-X-T, to learn more. Hello, I'm Nilay Patel. Today I'm joined by Joseph Min, author of the book Cult of the Dead Cow, How the Original Hacking Supergroup Might Just Save the World, and a reporter at Reuters who focuses on cybersecurity investigations. We talked about a very big problem, The SolarWinds hack and the state of U.S. cybersecurity. Austin-based SolarWinds is at the center of a major U.S. government hack, which targeted the Treasury and Commerce departments. SolarWinds is a dominant player in network management software. And if you work at a big company or other large organization, it's likely your network has SolarWinds software on it. And in December, it came out that a group of hackers, likely from the Russian government, had gotten into SolarWinds and then it used that access to breach everything from Microsoft to the United States government. Hackers were able to access government networks by slipping malware into a SolarWinds software update. That's all according to the global cybersecurity firm FireEye, which was also compromised. Now, on its website, The SolarWinds hack hasn't really gotten the attention it deserves, because it happened during the chaos after the presidential election. But it's a really big deal. It's also a deeply complicated story, part of a back-and-forth game of hacking that the United States and its rivals have been escalating for years. Pay attention to how quickly this conversation with Joseph goes to really big issues, like how deeply our military and security agencies should be integrated with private company security. There aren't a lot of easy answers here, but with a new administration and new appointees from President Biden, it seems clear that things are about to change. Okay, Joseph Men from Reuters. Here we go. Joseph Men, you're the technology project reporter at Reuters, focus on investigative cybersecurity stories. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. So I really wanted to have you on because I feel like in the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, the story of the SolarWinds hack and its fallout kind of got lost. And I know know it's a huge story, but so many other things have happened in our country that it almost to me feels like it's not getting the attention that it deserves. Is that kind of your sense of it, too?
1: Well, I agree with that, and I think it's by design. You know, this attack goes back... The roots of it go back more than a year, but the, the activity escalated and, you know, it came at a perfect time because the U.S. was so distracted, in particular, the U.S. government and and even the, the security people within the U.S. government were busy worrying about securing the elections. And so you, you couldn't have picked a better time to launch a massive spying attack on the government.
0: So from the very beginning, tell people... What Solar Winds is and how it was attacked.
1: Sure. So Solar Winds is a company that most folks haven't heard of, uh, unless they they work in in big companies. They make uh, mainly network management software. So you you download it, you install it. It sits on your network and it lets you know um, you know when things are you know how things are, are working on your network and it, it helps things run smoothly. You know, it, it's one of the many many sort of boring enterprise software infrastructure software makers but it happens to be used by a you know a a a large percentage a majority of the biggest companies in the United States and the, the biggest government agencies in the United
0: States so the the hackers compromised solarwinds and then who is affected
1: so we don't actually yet know how the hackers got into solarwinds there are a number of theories, software, you know, SolarWinds itself uses software from other providers. So this is what's known as a, as a supply chain attack, which is, which is among the scariest kinds of attacks. And SolarWinds was used to attack, was compromised in order to attack customers of SolarWinds. But that also may have been how the hackers got into SolarWinds in the first place. It could have been an employee gone bad. It could have been a you know a direct hacking technique that the company hasn't discovered yet or at least hasn't disclosed yet. But one way or another, they got in there, and and when they did, um, they got into the code building environment in a very sophisticated way. Uh, were able to insert a backdoor into SolarWinds uh, Orion network management uh, software code. But they did it in such a way that it it only happens when the code is being compiled at the last minute. So it was almost impossible to find. But once they're in there, anybody who downloaded at least two relatively recent updates of the Orion software uh, last year downloaded this backdoor. And then it, it looked around to see where it was. It connected with the original attackers. And then the attackers could decide whether to deploy additional code and really exploit that further. So the the universe of customers that downloaded the tainted SolarWinds code is around 18,000 customers, but so far it only looks like around 50 of the most important customers got that secondary infection that said that where the attackers were really interested.
0: And that list of customers, that's the State Department, Treasury, Homeland Security, right? Like major parts of the government were involved in this attack.
1: Right. And major technology companies. So we're talking uh, Microsoft, Cisco, and some security companies, which is you know another reason to be alarmed by all of this.
0: So let me just t- take one step back and make sure I understand. It. So SolarWinds is you're a, the CIO of a big organization. You're responsible for the network. You need to set up a bunch of servers and switches and just network management tools. You're probably running some of your own applications and a some environment somewhere you need to manage all that you buy orion which is the software from solar winds and that helps you manage your whole network that's right and then solar winds itself was compromised we're saying we kind of don't know how the hackers compromised it so badly they were able to inject code into updates into orion that were almost undetectable those updates were shipped to eighteen thousand customers right one of the things that really just sort of has caught my attention from the beginning is that you know the state department didn't catch it treasury didn't catch it microsoft didn't catch it a much smaller cybersecurity company like caught it how did that happen
1: yeah so th- this is this is not good you know not just the companies and the agencies that you mentioned but nsa the national security agency you know the the home of, of most of the brains in in the government of cybersecurity expertise They're a customer of SolarWinds and they had this stuff and they didn't catch it. And one of the NSA's many jobs is reviewing code of software suppliers to particularly DOD. And, you know, one would assume including this and they missed it. That's a really big red flag for the system we have. So what happened is that FireEye found it. And FireEye is, which has subsumed Mandiant a few years ago, is, you know, among the very best. Known most most sophisticated cybersecurity companies uh, on the planet. They're, they're quite famous in the industry, and justly so. You can imagine that they have all kinds of security because it's now security companies, you know, you might think that security companies aren't a bet, aren't an obvious target for serious hackers uh, because they're more likely to be detected, but actually they're a major target. Uh, because they have awesome access inside all sorts of things. And you can find out how they find out about you and whatever. So it, it's it's a long-time prize um, and a really effective means if you can compromise security uh, software. But they do have good defenses. And one of the things they had is uh, two-factor authentication and, for their employees. And there was a, a notification that one of the employees had activated a new device to get into um, to verify himself uh, coming into the network, and so they caught that and they asked the employee, um, "Hey, do you, do you have a new phone?" And the employee said, "No." Uh, and then FireEye began digging, and I, they've done a number of things that were that were really really good on this. Um, so one is that they didn't ignore this as, as a potential false positive; <laughs> they 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 actually went nuts and they eliminated. They couldn't figure out how the bad guys had gotten in as far as they had. And so they went digging for how they could have gotten in and they eliminated basically all the sort of more straightforward ways in. And then they started tearing down the code of the software that was on the servers uh, that were compromised. And that is a nightmare. I mean, that is is not something you wanna do, Um, but they did it and they actually found what had gone, gone wrong and it was in the SolarWinds code. And then they disclosed it, you know, they warned everybody, they found out what the hackers had had taken, which included, you know, some of their tools for, you know, uh, red team, pretend hacking, uh, testing uh, their clients' um, systems. And then they disclosed it before knowing, like, the entire story, like, knowing, you know, which of of SolarWinds customers were affected and all that stuff. They said, hey, you know, this needs to get out now. And, uh, And that's how
0: it got out. What's been the SolarWinds response?
1: SolarWinds, they were notified by FireEye. They looked at it. They confirmed that that, that code was tainted. They figured out, you know, which other editions uh, of their code had uh, had the back door. Uh, and then they hired like a bunch of firms. Uh, so they hired CrowdStrike, which is another prominent security firm, have a rival FireEye. They've hired, you know, one, one of the, the, the big consulting accounting firms to do a forensics dive. And then they hired... Um, this new firm, run by Chris Krebs, the former head of the Cyber Structure and, and Infrastructure Security Agency within DHS, and Alex Demos, they've hired them to sort of uh, you know tell them what to do better in the future, sort of like a culture, you know, how to prioritize the culture overhaul and, and best uh, security practices. Uh, because if you know, Southern winds is is, is is name is really on the line here. You know, if you're if you sell something and it's used to attack all your customers. That's a potentially existential crisis. And, and they're, you know, so they're, you know, they're, they have a new CEO by coincidence. And he said that this is, you know, jobs one, two, and three for him.
0: As well, it should be an existential crisis, I think. Yeah. That's actually one of my questions. It It feels remarkable to me that this many major American companies have all converged on one software provider for network management. You know, as I think about security broadly, honestly, as I think about the, the technology industry, It feels like so many things have converged onto one or two providers that they're rich targets for attackers, right? If you can break SolarWinds, you get the Treasury Department, but you also get Microsoft and you also get Cisco and you also get whoever else, as opposed to, you know, if there's a a broader spectrum of service providers at at this level, you know, the, the attacks kind of their effects are limited. Is that part of the puzzle here? that SolarWinds is just kind of big and dominant and maybe got a little lazy? So everything you said is true,
1: except for like the one or two players that allow you broad access. The real problem is that there are 100 companies like this. Yeah, SolarWinds has this major, major position in network management, but there are all these other companies that are also completely dominant. And this has been like a known sort of point of weakness for the security posture of of the country uh, for a long time. Uh, uh, way back when, at, at Stake, uh, actually, the um, established-is-old his old company, the CTO there, wrote a paper about Microsoft being a threat to the world because everybody used it. <laughs> so if you hack Microsoft, then you can hack everybody. And it's still true, really, of Microsoft and SolarWinds and you know Oracle and you know, hundred other companies you've never heard of. It's uh, that's it's really scary, uh, and that's that's why uh, supply chain attacks are so uh, are so alarming.
0: One of the questions I have about supply chain attacks here in this context is: the attackers got in, they modified an update, the updates got sh- sent out. We now live in a world of automatic software updates, or kind of I don't want to say careless, but we're conditioned to software updates. That's right. And we should be right. But but the the trade-off here is you should update your computer a lot for security reasons, because people might try to update your computer, but then that makes the software update itself a rich, rich target. Yes, How has that dynamic changed in the, in the industry?
1: So automatic software updates are a terrific thing because the vast majority of, uh, of hacks are not some super secret zero day nation state evil genius. It's, Garden variety uh, known flaws that people haven't gotten around to patching, and it's it's certainly understandable for individuals and 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 smaller companies. But I think still people don't get that at big companies they don't just automatically install uh, updates because they can uh, they can conflict with other software configurations and crash those. So there has to be a delay as you as you test it before you put it out there. But Nonetheless, uh, automatic updates are a terrific thing and nobody should stop automatic <laughs> updates because of this attack. It's just that, yeah, that's, that's, that is a grand prize. And there, there are other bits of that too. I mean, so there's digital certificates, you know, code signing is a really good thing that didn't used to be a thing, but now there's this authentication process. So, you know, that the code, you know, comes, you know, is authorized by the vendor Unfortunately, in this SolarWinds attack, they also stole uh the digital signing. So they did that at um at SolarWinds itself. So it looked like it was approved by SolarWinds. And they also um, have done that in other in other major attacks. That that that's a thing too. It's still a good thing, but unfortunately it's kind of turtles all the way down.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it feels like we're at some point trade-offs have to be made and the, the trade-off is to concentrate attack surfaces in one place and Ideally, have that place be well fortified, but even that can't be perfect. What is happening at SolarWinds now? They've hired the three companies. They've got a new CEO. He says it's jobs one, two, and three, but there's also however many clients, there's the 50 high value targets, there's the government. At the the simple level of I'm in charge of the network at the treasury department and I gotta fix it. What are the next steps?
1: Well, going back a bit, you've had a pretty lousy holiday break. <laughs> you know, this this stuff was coming out over over the break, and uh, we even ha- we haven't even talked about the additional vectors. So, solar winds wasn't the only way in. Um, some of the attacker behavior was found at uh, sites where they didn't download solar winds or the, the, that the tainted updates, or they didn't have solar winds at all. So, there's are still unknown ways in. The U.S. government has said that. There's at least password spraying, password guessing, automated uh, attacks of that sort. It looks like there are others. And it turns out that Microsoft is also uh, a big vector here. Their, you know, their cloud architecture is complicated and they have a system of resellers um, that sell you Office 365 if you're, uh, if you're a big company or an agency. And then those resellers frequently maintain access. And it looks like some of them were compromised. So that's how the attackers tried to get into CrowdStrike, the security firm. That's how they they did get into. to uh, It looks like it looks like that that may have been how they got into Malware Bytes, which is another security firm uh, that doesn't use SolarWinds. So if you're in charge of an agency and you're trying to defend it, one of the things you're looking for is are these other these other techniques that that came in. Was there another way in? The bad guys coming in. They're, you know, their first job is to make sure it's a clean entry and get rid of all their logs to make it confusing about how they got in. But job two is putting in additional backdoors. So those could be planted in all kinds of places, which is why this cleanup is going to take months or actually years, if you've got a really big network, to be sure that they're actually out. There are some folks who say you've got to burn down the entire network and rebuild it from scratch. And that might be true for like the highest value targets, um, you know, bits of the Defense Department. And I should say that there's no evidence yet that they've got into classified networks, uh, which are segregated. But if I was running these agencies, I want to be sure of that. The other problem is that it's certainly one of the goals of the attackers was looking at source code, uh, presumably to find additional vulnerabilities. So they did view Microsoft source code. They probably viewed the source code of other... Big companies, and then they can find new ways of attacks through other means that have nothing to do with solar ones. So um, you got to worry about that too.
0: Uh, the Microsoft part of the story to me is very confusing. So they they got into Azure, and then Microsoft basically said this isn't a big deal, even though all of the reporting around it says this is a big deal. And then Microsoft seems to have come around. Can you just walk me through that because I, I as I've been looking at it it seems like everyone wants this to be minimized and not quite so public and so all of the statements are a little opaque but tell me what exactly happened with Microsoft here
1: Well we know that you know Microsoft did download the tainted code but that's true you know of thousands of companies so we reported that, and Microsoft said, "Yeah, but they, there's no evidence they got into any production systems. Uh, it looks like it was uh, it was contained." I and others reported that. Well, it looks like you know Microsoft code was used in various other attacks, and then a bit later, Microsoft says, "Well, okay, actually, it looks like they did get they did get into our source code. They could view our source code. They couldn't modify our source code." So it's still unclear. The problem is when you get to this level of crisis, there's a lot of lawyers and PR people involved. <laughs> and, you know, God love lawyers and PR people, and they should all make good livings. But sometimes it's the enemy of clarity. And what security folks here need is, is clarity. And also, you know, these investigations are going to be going on for quite a while. So you, there are actually a number of companies that are saying that there is no evidence of X. But, you know, they're the saying like, you know, um, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, right? We know they were in there where they shouldn't be. You know, they had control of some Microsoft employee, at least one Microsoft employee accounts, uh, maybe more, and the the permissions that went with that. And we know Microsoft was used in lots of attacks. We don't know really how we got from A to B or if it was just through the Microsoft resellers yet. I, this will come out at some point. But it is... It is murky. And there are a number of big victims that haven't disclosed yet, that haven't said that they were compromised. And there will be at least a trickle, if not a stampede, of companies that say that that they were impacted. There is a weakness in disclosure law where uh, you have to disclose if you have, you know, if you're in one of, the, I think, something like 40 states and there's personal information of people that was compromised you have to disclose that and if there's a material if you're a publicly traded company and there and it's material to your revenue then you have to disclose it but everything else you by and large you don't and that's actually most breaches so w- one of the worst examples of that is when the F35 plans got compromised and you would see you know these major defense companies which i knew had been hacked um, not disclose it in their SEC reports, and the reason is that it's not material because, like, the government is gonna isn't going to buy an F thirty five from somebody else, so it actually <laughs> doesn't hurt their bottom line. Which is, you know, there are big systemic incentive issues here, and that includes disclosure, and that's why it's patchwork. And in my opinion, there should be a federal law um, that sort of harmonizes this sort of thing.
0: We're going to take a break and when we come back, I want to ask you, uh, I very pointedly not asked you who was behind it, but I think that is a, that's a conversation we should have. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Yext. We're all spending a lot more time online now. It's where we work, learn, and do the bulk of our shopping. That's why e-commerce is really the only commerce, no matter what industry you're in and why it's essential that your website can do the heavy lifting. Yext answers can help. A website that looks nice is one thing, but what's the point of great design when people can't find anything on your site? Yext Answers adds critical function to your form by adding a best-in-class search engine to your website, so your customers get an official answer to every question. Not only will Yext give them a direct answer, you can also include key calls to action like buy now or schedule an appointment. That means more transactions for your business and much happier customers who will come back again and again. The best part, you can try Yext Answers for free. Setting it up is easy. Just go to yext.com, that's Y-E-X-T, to start your trial and learn more about how Yext Answers can help your website grow your business. This episode is brought to you by Babbel, the first ever language learning app and the best-selling. Babbel makes it easy to learn a new language with bite-sized lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, German, and Italian. Unlike the infamous language classes you took in high school, Babbel designs their courses with practical conversations in mind, using lesson plans sourced from over 100 living, breathing language experts. No AI here, like other language learning platforms. It's a proven approach that's helped real people have real conversation in languages outside of their native tongue. And right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's right, six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com, that's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. We're back with Joseph Men from Reuters talking about the solar winds hack. Like I said, I very pointedly not asked you who was responsible for this because I think that deserves some focus. So to the best of our knowledge, who was responsible for these attacks?
1: Uh, the U.S. intelligence community and, you know, the, the sort of the top flight private people who often unfortunately know as much as the government people all say signs point to Russia. Uh, there's some discrepancy over, you know, which, uh, which agency within Russia The the, uh, tradecraft is really, really high.
0: When you say the tradecraft is high, what what specifically do you mean?
1: So the sort of amazing disappearing code. They left almost no artifacts from their code. Um, So there'd be, you know, all this careful work uh, deobfuscating what happened, and then they get there and and then there's nothing. They cleaned up all their, they made all their code disappear. That thing, the fact that they got the code signing certificate, the fact that the backdoor is inserted only when a certain product was being compiled and only at the last minute. Um, that's all really, really high-end stuff that pretty much by itself rules out anything but a nation state. I mean people underestimate this is a complicated area because you know if you're the victim of a hack, particularly if you're a publicly traded company with investors, you definitely want to say this was uh, a nation state of evil geniuses that you couldn't possibly have defended against. And sometimes it turns out to be a 16-year-old, and that's embarrassing. That actually happened with Twitter. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that Twitter said it was a nation state, but it looked like a very sophisticated hack, and then it literally turned out to be teenagers. This is not that. This really is a nation state. I would be very surprised if it's not Russia, which does deny it. Uh, There is some overlapping code. It is also true that countries have gotten good at imitating each other's stuff but i can tell you it wasn't the us and it was somebody that is that is not after money because while there was a broad net again like the 50 or or so whatever known secondary targets where they really went after them are classic espionage targets you know uh, the, the department of defense the state department the treasury department the commerce department so i mean that pretty pretty much rules out an economic motive we're down to like a handful of suspects and there's no reason to not believe that the U.S. assessment that it's Russia.
0: This is obviously complicated, right? The, the, the hack is happening in an election year. The Trump administration, President Trump himself, strangely cozy with Russia. There's a new administration. It seems like Biden's going to take a more aggressive posture during Russia. In the middle of all this, there's the election security noise Trump fires Christopher Krebs, who is in charge of cybersecurity. How does that all play into this? Is it we didn't want to say it was Russia too loudly, and now we're saying it a little bit more loudly? Is it the Trump administration did not have a good cybersecurity infrastructure? I, the shape of that seems really fuzzy to me, too.
1: I agree. I, I don't think that's something that we we know yet. It may have been like a bit of insurance on the part of the Russians that you know, the, the, under Trump, the United States government did not. Aggressively punish, particularly the executive branch, did not ag- aggressively punish uh, Russia for a lot of uh, really bad behavior that other governments would have done um, done some done more about. There were sanctions, but it was driven by congressional ang- action and that sort of thing. So, you know, with, you don't have to be a big conspiracy theorist to say that. Well, you know, the Russians think, well, we're going to get away. You know, we've gotten away with you know, invading Ukraine. We can do this big hack, and even if we get caught out, this is the least likely White House in in memory to uh, to sound the alarm and 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 rattle a saber at us. Uh, so you know, I from here, I certainly doubt that there was any foreknowledge uh, or anything like that in, in the administration of this. But if you're from an attacker perspective, you know we're distracted. You know, we the U.S. Uh, are distracted, and we have a president that's. Uh, less likely than predecessors, uh, even if he finds us to, um, to to yell and scream and and threaten sanctions.
0: We've got a new president now. Has their rhetoric shifted? Has the uh, posture towards, particularly this hack, but Russia cyber operations, has that shifted at all yet? So <laughs> that was a very telling sigh.
1: <laughs> it's, I mean, the the administration's been on the job for a few days, you know, and. In the sort of heated political atmosphere, you know, there's, there's stuff that doesn't, there's a wide spectrum of, of noise and before things are sorted out. So from the campaign, not from the campaign trail, but, you know, from the transition, Biden said that this is something specifically that is going to be responded to in a big way. Other folks said this is an act of war that people who've been at this for a long time and don't have a, a particular ax to grind are not saying it's an active war. There's no evidence of destruction. Um, there's no human life lost. And this is classic espionage. It's just that we got owned really badly. It's similar, I mean, in my mind, to the hack of the Office of Personnel Management, it's widely attributed to China some years ago, where they got uh, classified personnel files on the majority of folks in the U.S. government, with and outside of the U.S. government, with a secret clearance or uh, or above, that was really really bad. Um, but it wasn't warfare. That's that's an espionage win, and we are trying to do exactly that sort of thing to China and Russia and other and other governments. But um, it, I think it's clear that there will be some kind of response. There are going to be hearings on this. But you know, it's it has a lot of aspects, like many things, cyber, it has a lot of aspects. There's like, what do we do about how, you know, how are we sure that, you know, country X was behind this? Can we prove that to the world's satisfaction? And then do we respond economically or diplomatically in other ways, hopefully not militarily though, I suppose that's a possibility. And then there's like, how do we stop this from happening again? And that's, that's really hard and complicated uh, involves, uh, defense versus offense. It involves the, the how do you secure the supply chain? What do you do about employees in other countries, contractors in other countries? It's this. It's similar to the trade war with China. You know, there's like you know computers and the software inside the computers go back and forth. You know, dozens of times before they w- wind up on your desk, and it is pretty impossible to secure completely. So. What do you do about that? You, do you try and like, you know, undo all these global relationships because you're sometimes rivals? If you do, you're going to hurt the economy in a pretty major way. So I mean, there, there, there are big thorny issues. And it'd be nice if the new administration and Congress take that seriously and try and come up with a plan. It hasn't really
0: happened before. A breach of this scale, right? Where The biggest companies in America, the American government itself, that is usually the thing that catalyzes change that leads to a disclosure law or a reframing of the American posture towards offensive cyber attacks. But because of the transition and the the sort of instant quiet from the attacked parties, it doesn't feel like this is that moment. It, is there a group of people who are going to come into the Biden administration? Does they have appointees yet who have the expertise to raise the profile of this again? And build the political capital to, ma- to actually make the change?
1: Well, that's really interesting. So and this is ha- playing out in real time. Biden has appointed most of the top cyber people. As of this, this morning, there were, you know, one or two key holes. But among other things, for the first time, there's a, a deputy national security advisor for cyber, uh, who's Anne Neuberger, who's very well regarded, was at the NSA for many, many years, and and among other things was doing the sort of cooperating with industry uh, and uh, defensively part of NSA's mission. There are a number of people who have really strong military and government experience. As of this weekend, the suspected new uh, cyber czar inside the White House is Jen Easterly, who was one of the people that helped create Cyber Command as a a separate unit of, of the Pentagon. You know, the guys who do cyber attacks in other countries. So you have really intelligent, really experienced people. Do they have the kind of, you know, broad blue sky strategic thinking that might help turn around this really gnarly problem? I don't know. Uh, We'll see. You know, the fact that that both houses of Congress are from the same party probably helps, as does the fact that a lot of this isn't that partisan in in a terribly polarized environment. Nobody's a big fan of of, of getting hacked to pieces by the other countries. So I am more optimistic now than I have been in 20 years of covering this, but that doesn't mean I'd actually bet on a complete
0: turnaround. <laughs> so so you're starting from a low bar, is what you're saying? Yes. You know, you mentioned that this is primarily an espionage or it looks like uh, an espionage operation. What's interesting about that is you, you come after from Microsoft to do espionage. Kind of the way Americans would see it is, well, that that's Microsoft's problem. Right. That's not we don't need the the government or the Pentagon or like that that doesn't merit a military response. Right. Which is kind of what you're describing. But at the same time, this is a major national security problem. Like, how does that play together?
1: So that's a really good question. And you put your finger on one of, I think, the the biggest issues here. But let me separate separate out the the Pentagon offense response part of it. You know, the, the U.S. responded, the U.S. government responded when the North Koreans attacked Sony. For dumb reasons. I can't believe we're in an era where national governments attack each other over dumb movies, but here we are.
0: You're talking about when North Korea hacked Sony over the movie The Interview, which was about two journalists played by Seth Rogen and James Franco who went to North Korea to interview Kim Jong-un and eventually assassinate him, which North Korea obviously didn't uh, appreciate. It wasn't even a good movie. It's not like it was like Chinatown, or you know. You know, we we gave the movie a bad review, and Seth Rogen was very mad at it. It was like the <laughs> weirdest outcome of of that entire debacle was that Seth Rogan was mad. At but
1: you know, for a variety of reasons, after intense discussions at the highest levels of government, the U.S. you know did a response, mostly you know, mostly under the table. But there were there was some cyber action taken against North Korea. So sometimes that is appropriate, you know, just because. You know, another government attacks a piece of civilian infrastructure uh, doesn't mean that they should not there should not be any response. I mean, a private if a private power utility gets taken down in the United States by um, you know, uh, say Iran, we certainly reserve the right to attack Iran militarily over that. Again, this isn't that. This is espionage. There's there almost no very very rarely do you see military response to legit espionage targets being attacked. But there's a separate issue which you hit on, which is like, is this a Microsoft problem? You know, it's in my opinion, it is not fair to expect private companies, really no matter how large, to fend off entire other nation states. That is that should be you know the job of the U.S. government to defend private enterprise from other, other countries. It's really, really hard when you try to get into the weeds on that one, because sometimes a nation state will use the same techniques as the 16 or 17 year old. So there should be some reasonable standard of, of defense that is expected of companies. But again, at the really, really high end, you know, look, if the Russians got into NSA, the Chinese got into the classified personnel files, it doesn't matter how big a company you are; you're, you're going to get owned if they really want you. So um, that is that is one of the big strategic issues that I would hope that the White House and Congress addresses. How do you, where do you draw the line? What kind of help can be provided, and what and what's overreach?
0: You know, I, I think about the the big nation state actors that you would think about, right? The the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, the Iranians. There's a A tighter nexus between government and industry in those in those countries. I think that's the most polite way of saying it, where you know the government does some espionage and they're gonna hand over that information potentially to one of those large corporations. There's a level of corruption or maybe state design there that incentivizes both sides to act as one. I don't think we have that here, right? Like our incentives to go off and have our government hack a bunch of companies in other countries. Their incentives are very different. So how do you align how do you align all of that stuff here beyond just simple deterrence if you hack us we'll hack you back?
1: Uh, again, one of those big hairy aspects to this you're right that you know there's tighter integration between private companies and the state in many other nations. And it's not only uh, helps them on offense, it helps them on defense. You know, if the government can simply order everybody in, you know, the power industry to apply a patch, then they do it. We actually, you know, the United States government does not actually have that power here, (laughs) which is kind of scary. It is also true that the companies that are based in the United States, many of them get a majority of their money overseas. So even if, they think of themselves, or you know, for regulatory purposes, they're American companies. That doesn't mean they're going to march in lockstep uh, with the American government, which makes it really interesting. But remember, you said you talked about the U.S. government hacking companies in other countries. Well, sometimes, you know, as Snowden showed us, they're hacking American companies in other places. Uh, they did that to, to Google and and others um, in order to spy. Uh, so it's really messy. If there is this sort of retreat, this sort of trade war, you know, 10x, where we don't trust, you know, we need a completely American supply chain, whatever that means, then I guess you would have tighter integration, or at least a framework for tighter integration between the government and the private sector. That's not obviously a good thing. That would erode American business overseas. And, you know, the economy is part of what goes into national security, you know, a stronger economy is in a better position to defend itself. So um, it, it gets it gets quite tricky. And, and, you know, I think one of the big problems in discussing any of this in a grown-up way is the overclassification that we have in this country. The government tells even members of Congress very little uh, about capabilities uh, and what's actually happening out there. And so there is this kind of shadow warfare happening, this low-level Stuff, lots and lots of cyber operations happening, and we have no, you know, even members of Congress don't know what's going on. So um, it is hard to have a grown-up discussion about um, these sorts of trade-offs without greater openness.
0: One of the questions I've been wrestling with: we we do it too in spades. Yeah, when we the United States hacks a lot of things all the time, inside and outside of the country. Is there a way to? just pull that back internationally? Is there a, a treaty or a set of regulations or rules of engagement that exist or have been proposed to say, hey, like this is getting out of hand and all of our economies are in threat?
1: So in theory, yes. I mean, you can certainly have international agreements. You can have I mean for many years under the Obama administration it was all about norms like setting norms and if if there was a there's an attempt to do that kind of globally and then there well maybe we'll do it in, you know, in a given region and it it hasn't really led to very much you know and when there have been big tests it is widely understood that Russia shut out the lights in Ukraine a couple christmases ago The NotPetya attacks were terrible. The WannaCry attacks, which, you know, shut down hospitals. You would think that 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 would have given rise to some sort of international agreements, if anything would. And it hasn't yet. The president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, has been kind of a a spokesman on this sort of thing for the industry, talks about kind of a Geneva Convention sort of a thing that would, among other things, exempt civilian infrastructure from these sorts of attacks, but the problem is verification, I and mean, we can barely verify nuclear treaty compliance. It is there are so many proxies, both sort of literal and and figurative. The the line between nation state and crime uh, is deliberately fuzzed up in a number of places. It's really really hard to ensure that something wouldn't happen. And again, like you know, intelligent there has never been a deal that really stopped intelligence exploitation. So if there is going to be some kind of like global treaty or understanding or something, it would probably be about physical destruction and not about intelligence gathering, which again, this is.
0: You know, uh, uh, several months ago, I interviewed uh, Andy Greenberg, who wrote Sandworm, which is a book about not Petya and shutting off the lights in Ukraine. His argument to me was that was the moment when the Obama administration could have stopped it. But instead, they set a new norm that this is how we're doing it. Like we reserve the right to to attack back, that the international outcry around turning off the lights in Ukraine was not big enough, and the message was sent, this is in some way acceptable behavior. Do you think that's a grown? Was that the moment? Was that an inflection point? Or has it just been a steady drumbeat of other things?
1: I think that was a missed opportunity. Uh, There certainly could have been, uh, and I think a lot of people think should have been more done there. But again, that was Russia attacking Ukraine. It wasn't attacking us. And I think the response would have been very different if Russia had attacked us in that way. Unfortunately, Ukraine, like some of the Middle East, is kind of a proving ground for a lot of these capabilities. We haven't seen a lot of what nation states could do to key parts of our infrastructure because people don't really, haven't so far felt like it's worth it to, to bloody our nose. But they can. We, we probably can, too. You know, I I think if Ukraine had been in a position to respond, it would have. There's a, you know, you could certainly make an argument that NATO should have done something. We'll see if, you know, with the passage of time with people who care more about international alliances, if that stuff gets firmed up. I think a lot of NATO saw the lack of response to that as a a mistake. So we'll see how strongly the Biden administration feels about NATO and this and, and this issue. You know, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of things in play, but um, I think cyber's back on the table now by administration made it, is going to make it a priority. And I, I, you know, I think it's going to be it's going to be a part of basically all major conflicts going forward. Um, so there's no reason why it would not also be subject to treaties, agreements, responses, norms, that sort of thing.
0: We're going to take another break. When I come back, I want to ask you about your book and I want to ask what happens next. We'll be right back. Support for this episode comes from Personal Capital. The more the world seems out of control, the more it pays to focus on what you can control, like your finances. With Personal Capital's free financial tools, you'll be able to see all your accounts in one place. And because just about everyone's tired of nasty surprises, you can monitor every investment and use Personal Capital to uncover hidden fees in your retirement accounts. All through your phone, tablet, or laptop. Download the Personal Capital app or visit personalcapital.com to get these free, powerful financial tools. Or if you become a client, Personal Capital has financial advisors ready to help you build and maintain a personalized portfolio. Personal Capital. There's no place like financial confidence. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. This year has presented us with too many challenges to name already. It's a good time to ask, how are you feeling? If the answer is anxious or scared or a little numb, you're not alone. A lot of people are feeling that way, and BetterHelp is here for all of us. Whether you're giving therapy a try for the first time or looking for a new therapist, BetterHelp is here for you with licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help in areas like family and relationship conflict, depression, self-esteem, anxiety, and more. Talk to your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience. BetterHelp counselors specialize in the areas like family and relationship conflict, LGBTQ matters, self-esteem, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. To get matched with a therapist, first you'll fill out a questionnaire to assess your needs, then they'll match you with a counselor in under 48 hours. You can exchange unlimited messages with your counselor in addition to your scheduled video and phone sessions, and everything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is an affordable option. Get started today at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Talk to a therapist online and get help today. We're back with Joseph Men from Reuters. So as we were just before we started recording, you were saying there's a there's a little bit of a tie between the book you just wrote, Cult of the Dead Cow, and some of the characters involved in the in the solar wind response. Explain that to me.
1: Well, so the book sort of tells the history of of the um the good guy impulse in, in security and it tells the story of these these old school hackers from before there was a web, from from back in the in the 80s, to, to the to the present day, and their their sort of moral evolution, and a lot of them turned pro. I mean, so they were like teenagers, pranksters, and whatever, and they turned pro in various ways, and they invented hacktivism. But one of the things they did is that in order to make a difference, some of them went to work inside the government, including DARPA, uh, and some of them went into the private sector, and uh, founded really important security companies because that was the they thought the best way to actually help with security. And one of one of the companies they founded was called um, At Stake, uh, which was an early security boutique where hackers went inside companies like Microsoft and big banks and whatever and said, this is what you're doing wrong. And so sort of brought the hacker mindset inside these companies. And one of the people, a lot of really amazing people came out of At Stake uh, and went to work on in inside every major tech company. In the United States, um, and one of them is Alex Stamos. Uh, so he joined At Stake because he admired these guys, you know, who had testified before Congress at, about how fragile the internet was. And Stamos went on from there to do, uh, among other things, work at um, at Yahoo as a security chief, security guy, and then at Facebook, and where he dealt with the the Russian disinformation in 2016, and uh, now he teaches at Stanford um, on Big disinformation and related issues, and he is in business with Chris Krebs, ex-U.S. government, ex-Microsoft, and they're running around trying to help Solar Winds and, and whatever learn uh, and other companies learn the lessons of of, of this latest hacking spree. So there's this—it's kind of this continuum, and it's like there's this coaching; these coaching trees where you know, great uh, basketball coach X trained all these people who then went on and coached all these other teams, and they all go back to the same root of the tree. And, uh, you know, the cult of the Get dead cow story is kind of kind of about that.
0: Alex has been uh, in and around in our shows for a long time. One of the things he has said about the 2016 election was, we were all focused on the wrong thing at Facebook. They, they, they didn't know what it would look like. And then everyone in 2020 was worried about Russian disinformation and the threat ended up looking very different uh, and coming from a different place. I think Chris Krebs has said something similar. We were all focused on the election. We missed this thing. How do you build a broad enough array of sensors and detection mechanisms to say, okay, there's a major election going, but there are these gigantic fat targets in the United States that need constant surveillance and protection? Well...
1: So first of all it's in the nature to be fighting the last of things to be fighting the last war. I'm not sure that we still need to be taking off our shoes at the airport. You know because one guy tried that thing that one time. You know you really high-end terrorists uh, or other uh, adversaries are not going to do the same thing that they've already taught us how to defend against and this is a classic case of that. As to how you defend against this kind of intelligence driven attack I think you need to deal with some really fundamental questions. That includes supply chain, uh, vendor relationship. And to my mind, it definitely includes the defense-offense balance. I did some stories a few years ago that said that 90% of what the US government spends on cyber things, at least back then, was about offense or intelligence gathering, not about defense. And the NSA is is the the agency at the time was charged with defense. Now DHS has taken up some of that, but their budget is minuscule compared to the NSA's cyber budget. And the NSA had a, a whole division, the Information a, a Security uh, Information Assurance Division, that was responsible for at least securing the U.S. government. And after the Snowden debacle, uh, the Obama White House had a commission of five folks uh, to look at this and figure out a whole bunch of things that we should do different to avoid another Snowden situation. And one of their recommendations was spin out the defensive division of the NSA from NSA proper because nobody trusts the NSA and because the offensive mission so dominates that you can't be sure that they're not going to subvert defense, which in fact, they did. Uh, And that would emerge from the Snowden League's But they didn't, instead they did a disappearing act where NSA scattered the defensive mission lower down within the agency. So there was no longer like, you know, a number two at NSA whose mission was defense. They got rid of that position. Uh, So they went the opposite way. I think defense has to be prioritized a lot more than than it has been because if everybody's good at offense, then you're gonna have a lot more offense around the world. The way to actually win is to get really, really good at defense. Um, and I think you um I think we, we have not been focused that way at all.
0: That if everyone's good at offense, you just end up with more offense, right? That that sounds to me like pretty classic, you know, foreign policy military de- deterrence language, right? I mean, this is this is how this is the Cold War, right? You were you're speaking in the language of the of the Cold War in, in some way. What breaks it? Is it is it just we get so good at defense that no one tries anymore? That'd be nice, wouldn't it? They, they'll People will keep trying, but you can raise the cost.
1: I mean, it obviously has to be a multifaceted thing. I mean, if you're talking about Cold mm-hmm. War, then the big thing is deterrence and the certainty that, you know, the country X will retaliate against country Y. It's true we have not seen that or not very much of that. So that needs to be done, too. But what I'm talking about is, is more the uh, Reagan's uh, Star Wars vision of um, being able to shoot down missiles as they come at us. Now, that's what would actually change things. So yeah, the, the idea is that they would keep trying to get into Langley or uh, or, or Maryland uh, and, and would fail. That would be super awesome. And, <laughs> but, we, but we haven't actually even tried. There's really cool stuff happening in the private sector. There's been a lot of advances in defense, but there hasn't been a government-wide embrace of that initiative where you put lots and lots of money to the National Academy of Sciences or others to really beef that up. There's skunk works inside DARPA, there hasn't been a giant thing and there needs to be a giant thing.
0: Do you think there's like a, a cultural shift with a new generation of, of lawmakers? Right. I mean, we, we we have some younger lawmakers now. We have lots of younger people who've come up in things like cult of the dead cow in parts of the government. Like people are good at computers now in a way that maybe they weren't so good at computers 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, this, this, this is one of the good things. Um, I mean, in the olden days, when I started covering this, you know, the only good thing you could say about, you know, cybersecurity was, well, awareness is, is rising. <laughs> uh, the, and now it's true. I mean, there are people in Congress that actually understand are they're, they're actual engineers in Congress. This is a new thing. Uh, you know, you still have, you know, a hearing where they drag in Zuckerberg or somebody and the questions, as you know, are really embarrassing from members of Congress. But it, it, is, a, it is a big change from where it was. And there are uh, tech savvy staffers at all levels people understand this and they're digital natives and they understand these trade offs i think that there's a better chance than we've ever had of people having a real discussion about this but again it's i'm concerned more about the establishment the the four star generals you know the people running intelligence agencies you know people in the white house who still think of of warfare and intelligence in the old terms and don't get into this. What about the private sector versus the public sector stuff? Because there aren't really straightforward answers. And you know, right now our government has been so dysfunctional that you know you couldn't get the two houses to agree on pizza toppings. So, you know, how are you going to tackle something like this? I mean, the Chamber of Commerce, the private lobbying group, was outraged that the folks in Department of Energy and and DHS wanted to put out voluntary guidelines. For what are some best practices to protect your nuclear plants uh, or your power plants from hackers? Because they thought that this is a slippery slope that would lead to more regulation. <laughs> we can't have that crap anymore. We need people actually willing to give and take and deal with complicated issues, or we're going to keep getting
0: owned like this. What's the next thing you're looking for in the so specific to the solar wind story? What's the next turn of the screw? Do you think?
1: Well, turn of the screw would be you know giant companies X, Y, and Z say that they were also breached by the same folks. they also had access to their source code. maybe there were other you know updates that got their customers uh, that sort of thing that's that's pretty likely. There may be in these hearings or there will be there will likely be an intelligence report that is made public about why it's Russia, uh, why they think it's Russia. And there will probably probably be some big review o- over practices and some other commission. On the other hand, maybe it's going to wind up like the Snowden Commission, where some of the stuff gets adopted uh, and some of it doesn't. So uh, I don't know about that. I think, I think a, a federal disclosure law is, is, is plausible because companies don't want to have to deal with this patchwork of states. It would also be nice if there's a federal privacy law. Uh, so maybe those, those initiatives go, go together um, and they're, they're, both of those things happen.
0: Well, Joseph Men, Technology Projects reporter at Reuters, author of Cult of the Dead Cow. That's a new book. You should go pick it up right now. Thank you so much for joining me. This was really, really informative.
1: Thanks for having the the chat. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you again to Joseph Men for taking the time to talk today and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Sophie Erickson and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. With the arrival of a new year, it's not a bad time for a mental health check-in. Maybe you'd like to give therapy a try for the first time, or you're feeling ready to try it again. Whatever the case, BetterHelp is here for you with licensed online counselors who are trained to listen and help in areas like family and relationship conflict, depression, self-esteem, anxiety, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. Talk to your counselor in a private online environment at your own convenience. BetterHelp counselors specialize in areas like family and relationship conflict, LGBTQ matters, self-esteem, and more. Whatever you're feeling, BetterHelp can help you navigate it. If you think professional help could ease whatever you're going through right now, check out BetterHelp. First, you'll fill out a questionnaire to assess your needs, and then they'll match you with a counselor in under 48 hours. You can exchange unlimited messages with your counselor in addition to your scheduled video and phone sessions, and everything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is an affordable option. Get started today at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Talk to a therapist online and get help today.